Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. You can see the work of Atlanta artist Arland in many parts of the city. There are giant paintings on wood covering the interior walls of favorite coffee shops and bars. His larger-than-life murals adorn the sides of buildings from Decatur to the Old Fourth Ward to the Highlands and include fantastically wise creatures like a snail that wants us to remember life is too important to be in a hurry. Some of the artist's images, like Pray for ATL and Lost Cat, have become so woven into the fabric of Atlanta, they've taken on lives of their own. City Light senior producer Kim Drobe sat down with Land to discuss his 30-year love affair with our city and the importance of humor in his work. We'll hear that conversation later this hour. First, on the comedy 30 Rock, Tina Fey's character Liz Lemon hates Valentine's Day and substitutes it with Anna Howard Shaw Day. That's a fictional holiday celebrating the real February 14th birthday of women's civil rights leader Anna Howard Shaw. An unusual live Valentine show will be performed in Atlanta at Bankman's on February 19th. Tinder Live with Lane Moore is a totally improvised comedy show where Moore swipes through the best of the worst Tinder profiles on stage before she decides who to swipe right on. She joins us now via Zoom. Lane Moore, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. Hi. When did you come up with the idea for Tinder Live? 2014. So it's been a while now. Yeah. And had you been a Tinder user? I had used dating apps. I had used, you know, dating websites, things like that. But, you know, when that app came out, it seemed like a different way to do things. And so the first time I went on it, I was like, 
wow, a lot of these profiles are absolutely bonkers. This would be so good for live comedy. They're just so surreal. Well, for those who may not be familiar with how Tinder works, would you describe the app and the hilarity of doing this live on stage? Basically, all dating apps are are pretty much the same. You see someone's profile. If you like it, you swipe right. If you don't like it, you swipe left. What my show does, it's actually a very kind, very funny show. I'm not taking, you know, somebody who seems really nice and ripping them to shreds. That's not interesting. That's not funny. What I'm doing is I'm taking the weirdest profiles that people see on there all the time. Like there was one that I saw that was a totally naked man standing next to a dead deer. Oh, we swipe right on that guy and we talk <laughs> to him. Uh, so it's really good natured. It, it's just going for the weirdest, like, wait, what is this? And swiping right. And then you can, you can chat with this strange dead deer man. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious about the presentation Can the audience see the different profiles to project something? Yes, yes. So it's all projected on a screen so the audience can see exactly what I'm seeing. And then I ask the audience, what do you think, right or left? And, you know, they know the guidelines pretty well. And it's like, if a a guy seems like he's just really nice and normal, we swipe left. But... You know, if the profile is he's dressed as a wizard and maybe actually really thinks he is a wizard, everybody gets really excited to talk to the wizard. Oh, my goodness. Have you ever been in a situation where the Tinder profile you were discussing is someone's profile in your live audience? Yes. So, um, (laughs) Do tell. That happens a fair amount. My favorite one was, uh, so I'm based in New York City. That's where I live. And I do the show every single month in New York City and then, you know, tour around with it. There was a show that we did a couple months ago here in New York City. And I matched with this guy. He had a really fun profile because again, you know, it's not necessarily their profile is bad, but there's something about it that's just interesting. And this person seems like they'd be really fun to talk with. And so this guy had a really fun looking profile. It was kind of silly, kind of weird. And we matched and I said something to him and he wrote back and he was like, by the way, I'm here in the audience tonight. And we were like, what? And so... (laughs) I was like, wait, where are you? And he raised his hand and the audience is so excited. And I was like, oh my goodness. I was like, well, would you feel comfortable? Would you want to come up on stage and talk about your profile and why you chose these photos and what these mean to you? And he was like, sure. So then he came up on stage and it was me and comedian David Cross and another comedian, Nagin Farsad. And we're talking to him about his profile. And he was like, well, this photo's from this and this photo's from this. And it turned out it was his birthday and he loved Tinder Live and he came to the show and he happened to end up being on it. It was just this, I think that's one of the things I love about Tinder Live is that it's just, it's totally improvised every show. So anything can happen. Like that moment can happen. There's no way I could have planned or scripted that. That was a tender Tinder Live. Yes, it was actually. I was like, this is really beautiful. Do I just marry this guy? Maybe. I don't know. Did you go out with it? No, I didn't. But I, you know, I shared it with people online. And I was like, this is so special. And and one of his friends was like, I know him. He's so awesome. And that, you know, it made him so happy to like have that moment. So 
it's really cool. It's just a very, like a really fun, funny environment that's created there. So are you doing it? Well, obviously that was in real time. Are you actually getting a response from the person whose profile you're looking at? Yes. So that's the thing, you know, I message them and it's so exciting when they respond in real time. Sometimes they don't respond, you know, some of them won't respond until after the show, but a good portion of the time they'll write back in real time. And we're like, oh my gosh, we matched. It's he's swiping or he's, <laughs> he's typing rather. And so it really is this incredible thing because there's really nothing like it where it's just like, it's kind of a show that gets created by the people we're talking to, the people in the audience with me. It's just like, it's all happening. And we're all experiencing that excitement of like, wow, we don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. I watched your TEDx talk in Boulder titled How to Be Alone, which was the name of your 2018 book. In the TED Talk, you mentioned how people fear being alone and how you yearn to be dependent upon someone because you had to raise yourself and be independent at a very young age. Lane, what was it like saying that all in front of a live audience in Boulder? In the beginning, you say, yeah, it's very sad, probably 25 times sadder than it even sounds. But did you feel very vulnerable right then? Oh, yeah, that was not, <laughs> that was not a pleasant or easy thing to do at all. It, I felt like, I felt very vulnerable. I felt like I had no skin because, you know, anytime you're saying things that it feels like socially, like we're not allowed to say, or we're not supposed to say, or we're not supposed to admit, it feels awful, you know, and, and looking back, I'm like, oh my God, why, why did I put myself through that? But, you know, I, I have to say the number of people who read how to be alone or saw the, the Ted talk, you know, and tell me like, actually I have felt that way. I have experienced so much of that in my life. I'm like, okay, you know, there's a lot of us who never speak that truth because it's so painful. So to me, I'm like, yeah, that absolutely makes sense that it felt horrible because it's something we're not allowed to do really. You have another book coming out. I read. Yes. Yeah. I'm really excited about it. It's called You Will Find Your People, and it comes out in spring of 2023. What kind of responses have you gotten from How to Be Alone? You know, I'm wondering if You Will Find Your People is a sequel of sorts. The responses I've gotten, you know, the book has been out a couple of years now, but the steady stream of messages on Instagram, emails, comments of people who are just now finding the book or who read it at the time and will tell me they've never seen their story reflected by anybody. And I certainly hadn't. It's a large part of why I read the book. I never really saw anyone talking about any of the things that I had experienced so deeply in my life. So I wrote it and I really didn't think there were this many people out there who 
related to that and really had had really rough childhoods where they didn't really feel like they belonged anywhere and, you know, then had a hard time making friends and forming healthy relationships. There are so many people apparently who've experienced this. So I still get hundreds of those every week. And then you will find your people ended up being, you know, through the process of telling, telling my story and how to be alone I started to realize all of these beautiful ways that I was able to examine friendship and what it's supposed to be, what it can mean, because we don't really talk about that. That's another thing we don't really talk about. We just kind of assume everyone has great friends and, you know, we move on, but, you know, we don't really talk about friend breakups and how hard it is to have healthy, consistent, loving friendships. So that's really what I am going to explore in this next book. Hmm. Will your book focus on being alone during the pandemic? You know, I'm, I think there'll be some of that. I'm still writing it now. It's so tough because it's like on one, on one hand, you know, we want our experience in this to be reflected. We want to feel seen because it's so challenging. But on another hand, there's a part of me that's like, I don't ever want to think about this again. You know, it's just, it's so fresh. It's still, ha- you know, it's, it's very hard to, to think about. And I know sometimes when I watch TV and they're setting the episode, you know, with masks and stuff, and I'm like, it's too, it feels too soon to me. So I think that's a decision I'm kind of grappling with. Yeah. I just asked because especially people who are uncoupled, many have experienced a sense of isolation or being socially distanced from friends and the difficulty of getting out and dating it has been complicated to say the least. Lane, how has comedy helped you work through some of the difficult childhood experiences? And difficult adult experiences for that matter. (laughs) I'm curious about how you mine your personal experiences and in turn, what you receive through creating comedy. So when I was a kid, my best friends were TV shows and movies and books and music. Like those were, you know, such a such a beautiful thing for me for multiple reasons one because i knew that when i grew up i wanted to make books and comedy and music and i knew i wanted to make tv shows and movies like that was those were all things i wanted to do but also being able to connect with those characters those songs those musicians really made me feel very seen so it was this i guess this two part thing but but i think that a big reason why I do what I do now is because I wanted to do that. I wanted to be able to write a song, write a book, write a TV show, write a movie that would keep somebody company when they felt like they didn't have anybody else, or they were just really having a hard time and whatever was going on in their lives. And so, you know, every time I do a Tinder live show, every time you know, I do virtual shows or write a book or whatever. Like, I just want to be able to provide people with however long it is, an hour or a day or whatever it is, but just a a period of time where they just feel 
free and good and they don't feel as weighed down by all of these things that might make them feel like they're alone or things are hard or bad. I know what that feeling is like so much. So for me as an artist, I really, it's important to me and it means so much to me that the things that I create can do that for people the way that other artists did that for me. Comedian Lane Moore, her improvisational show Tinder Live is at Bankman's on February 19th, Saturday. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, our Valentine's celebration continues with an artist who's been in love with Atlanta for 30 years, the iconic R. Land. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. While strolling through many in town neighborhoods, take a look around, and almost like magic, you'll probably see the mark of Atlanta artist Our Land. There are giant paintings on wood covering the interior walls of favorite coffee shops and bars. His larger-than-life murals adorn the sides of buildings from Decatur to the Fourth Ward to the Highlands and include fantastically wise creatures, like a snail that wants us to remember life is too important to be in a hurry. Some of the artist's images, like Pray for ATL and Lost Cat have become so woven into the fabric of Atlanta they've taken on lives of their own. Recently, Arland sat down with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes to discuss his 30-year love affair with our city and began by explaining how he ended up in Atlanta. I moved here about, I think around 94, 93, 94, but I was, I was already engaged in the Atlanta scene since I, I, I think I was coming up as early as 1981. I was sort of a part of the scene since the mid eighties, but I was sniffing around up here back in the early, early eighties and uh, fell in love with Atlanta on the very first visit. Well, Atlanta has certainly fallen in love with you and your style is very distinctive. 
I was wondering if that has always been your style, the shaky line, bright colors, interesting creatures. Did you ever veer anywhere else in your path? I think for the most part, that is sort of the visual vocabulary that I've stuck with. It has just happened like that. It wasn't something that I developed consciously. It was just the only way I knew how to achieve whatever I was trying to say in a visual manner. So it was the language from the get-go. And it just, uh, I guess it's evolved to some extent, but pretty much looks the same as, as how it did 40 years ago. When you started creating art, what drew you to the medium? Were you an impulsive doodler in school or was it something that you consciously picked up with intention at one point? I don't think that I ever really thought about it. I think that, I think the one thing that is consistent throughout the course of time so far is a sensibility rather than just the line or, you know, just the style. Because a lot of things that have been a part of what I express out there in the world may not look as much like my drawing, but sometimes the drawing is the thing that achieves whatever it is I need to say. But like the lost cat thing, for example, that flyer really has little to do with the standard drawing style, but some people can totally see the connection and some people would never think that it was me. Um, And I get that a lot where people just all of a sudden realize, oh, I never knew that was yours, that kind of thing. To your question, I don't know that there was ever a moment where I thought, this is what I'm going to do. I think it was more about just whatever it took to achieve whatever thing I was trying to say or put out there into the world. And sometimes it's just the drawing style. And since I'm not a very good artist, in my own opinion, I think that it's just the best way that I can make whatever I want to make happen, happen. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It does, but agree to disagree on the very good artist part. That's uh, <laughs> that's not the general consensus, but we'll move along. Since you mentioned Lost Cat, for those in our audience that aren't familiar, will you describe that flyer a little bit for us and the words that accompany it as well? <laughs> well, you know, it's a uh, it's been around now. I think this is the 20, 20th anniversary of its so-called debut in the world. <laughs> I was working on a bunch of projects one night, and this is back in the days before you could do everything on your laptop. I would go to Kinko's, and sometimes that would be two or three in the morning because they were open 24-7. And one night I had two or three jobs I was trying to uh, perfect and get ready for deadline. But while things were printing at Kinko's, I was just looking through my file folder because I just had a bunch of stuff, you know, in this big notebook. God, this sounds so old and antiquated. (laughs) But I had had like a large folder full of just junk that if the mood hit me, I would make something happen with it. So I had this old picture of this cat that I found somewhere. And while I was waiting for this print job, I was just screwing around with the copy machine and I made a copy of the cat. And then I just scribbled, you know, some words on top and below and wasn't thinking much about what I was saying. But when I finished it, I just started making copies and it made me laugh. So I think that's kind of one of those things that is really important to me. If something makes me laugh, that's the best way to measure whether it's something that's of any value to me. It made me laugh pretty hard. This is long before the days of, you know, viral 
memes and I went to breakfast the next morning. Oh, I forgot the most important part. That night after I left Kinko's, I went back to the studio and then took the copies and pasted them around town. <laughs> um, and then went to bed, got up the next morning, went to breakfast at Thumbs Up, which was a pretty hot breakfast place in 2001. And uh, there's a line kind of around the block, but lost cats were kind of everywhere. And uh, I didn't think it was going to be any big deal. I just, it was just something that I wanted to see. I just wanted to do it. I mean, it just hit me that night and I did it. And um, people were in front of me and back of me talking about the cat. Yes. <laughs> they were looking at it. And it was so funny. I don't know. I just saw it has never stopped. It's, it just keeps on giving. It's a wonderful part of um, my life now. And it's, <laughs> I'd never imagined that it would be a thing that would last more than a week. But yeah, uh, and here it is two decades later. Yeah. For people who haven't seen it, can you tell us the words that are on that poster? Um, I don't know that I have it memorized, but, you know, it's a, it's misspelled. A, a lot of uh, malaprops or whatever you want to call it that are on there where it's like lost cat instead of L-O-S-T. It's L-O-S-S. And then it talks about, um, don't you have it memorized, Kim? <laughs> Pretty sure the cat needs some shots and that it foams. Yep, that's right. No, um, here I have one. It just says speckles. Below the photograph says speckles. Do not call when come. Limps, dirty, not tag. Reward, needsman, period, foam. And then it says call ward. And then there's a phone number on there. That was, I, I just made up. And then for a long time, when I would call that number, there was nobody on the other end. It was just like a call that was not in service. But subsequently, years and years later, long after Lost Cat had many lives and somebody got that number and Lost oh, Cat at that point had traveled the world. It had been in books and television shows and movies and in bars around the country in LA, New York, everywhere. People would see that number on the flyer and would call it in the middle of the night. So I started hearing of these complaints from this person who had the number and I felt bad for her, but I don't know what to do at this point because it's already, it was long established before she had the number and people would call her in the middle of the night, prank call her, ask questions about lost cat and this and that. So there's so many stories that break off of this one piece of work. I could put together a book of just the adventures that come from this one flyer. I don't know if it's anything special now, but back then it felt special and it still feels special. But, but you know what I'm saying? There's so many things that travel like that now through the internet that when this thing started, it wasn't the same. It was, it was remarkable when something would sort of build a life just from being on the street. Now you can yeah. put something on the internet in one minute and it can be a thing in two hours. I think of you as the father of a viral video. Like you were doing things that are getting the same reactions as what people do now when they share a video well before social media was even a thing. Yeah, I guess so. I would be hard pressed to find many Atlantans that haven't run into one of those flyers at some point in their life. There's been a couple of other things that you've done through the course of your artistic times that don't completely fall into the box of your classic paintings and drawings. Another one that I had seen around town once upon a time were signs for advertising yuppie condos. Mm -hmm. Was that an Arland project as well? It was. That was 
around the same time, about 2001, it was when you first started getting a sense that Atlanta was starting to change. And I, I had already had a couple of stents in New York, but increasingly Atlanta felt like the center of the universe, or at least, you know, at least everything was decentralized. So you could make stuff happen just about anywhere you wanted to make happen by 2001. And certainly that's true more so now than ever. But back then you already got a good sense of that. And Atlanta was coming into its own at that point. Meanwhile, there's this thing happening where in the few places here and there where um, developers can find a way, they tear down old properties or find plots of land that aren't developed and they throw up these apartment buildings or condos or lofts or whatever. And it was just like, what is happening here? This is terrible. It didn't feel right. I mean, obviously it's commonplace now, but back then it was really weird because I felt like Atlanta was so soulful and all of a sudden here are all these new constructions that were not great. Anyway, I, I just decided that there's not much you can do about that, but I started, started putting these signs up, just sort of making fun of those. It looked like just any other sign that was out and about on the streets of Atlanta, advertising, coming soon, available new lofts and condos kind of thing. Are you going to ask me what they say? Because I don't have one of those in front of me either. But it basically, it's just sort of, I think it even says Yuppie Ghetto. It looks very legit, like uh, just an official Corplast sign on every corner telling you that there are uh, Yuppie Ghetto lofts and condos coming soon. Those sort of caught fire too. It was like they just, I think it spoke to a lot of people that were on the same page that I was on about like what was happening. Yep. Now those those lofts and condos and those kind of places house tens of thousands of people within a five mile radius of the city that I love and can't disparage them too much because I guess they, they offer a place for people to live and be a part of the community. And there's a lot of wonderful folks. As a matter of fact, at one point I did a run of those for sale because so many people ask me all the time, remember those yuppie ghetto signs you used to do? Can I buy one of those? So I did like a, a run and people, I would get these emails and messages from people that say either they bought one because they live in one, you know, they bought a sign because they moved into one and that was their first place, or they would steal them off of the streets, you know, get up on a ladder or on top of their car or on top of their boyfriend's shoulders and steal one and hang it in their yuppie ghetto. So um, <laughs> that was that was a really strange aspect of that was like people know what, that they live in one, but they, so they want the sign. It's very meta. Hanging in it. Uh, I don't know. I, that's the kind of stuff I live for. I love that, that something that I express means something to them too. So it's like a connector. It's like I connect with you, even though you live in the very kind of place that I would want to avoid living in. I mean, this is before housing became so unaffordable in the city. This is back when you'll get a Cabbage Town house for $60,000. So why would you get uh, a yuppie ghetto condo for one twenty? I don't know. You very much tapped into the way that many in town people felt at that time 20 years ago when those condos and apartments started popping up everywhere. It did feel a little bit like an invasion upon a city that we were very used to the landscape of. And and as you mentioned, it is now very much the norm. And yeah. there are some beautiful Atlantans that take home in these places. And some of them do offer a little more affordable housing than a regular house because our prices here have gone so crazy. Yeah. But if anybody 
was familiar with the way that Atlanta looked back in the 90s or early 2000s. It or did felt. dramatic, yeah, or felt it dramatically changed our city. Yeah. So those signs spoke to a lot of people. And there's one other thing I wanted to chat with you about that I would lump into this category of you being a bit of a prankster, aside from an artist. Is it true that once upon a time, you bought a bunch of dead iPhones and glued them to countertops around town? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That is the first time I've even thought about that. You mentioning that brings that. I think I did that when iPhones first became, you know, now it's super commonplace for people to be on their phone everywhere. And um back in the days when mobile phones were really starting to, I remember being ashamed to be on my phone when I was in a vehicle or out in public. I don't want to be on the phone when people are around. I don't, I think it's more of like, Oh, I'll do this when I'm not engaged with society, you know, in my own personal space. Um, But then as things got to where people are walking around looking down on their phones, I think I bought a bunch of dummy phones the ones that basically have all the housing of the device, but without the guts. Um, And they were, I don't know, 20 bucks a piece or something like that. I bought a bunch of them and I just would glue them to things that seemed relatively permanent um, in places where there's a lot of human activity. And it was funny to see people of all different types walk up to it when there's nobody around and try to pick it up and it's just stuck. I don't know what, (laughs) I don't even know if that's really funny, but it just amused me. And it at least was amusing to people that I was with when they would see it. And I would never claim that it was me that did it. I wouldn't even be like, look, that person's about to pick up my phone. It's not like that at all. I'd just like, oh my God, somebody found a phone, but they can't pick it up. I'm not trying to claim responsibility for it. But, you know, just it was just a funny moment. And I can't believe that you remember that. I think it speaks well to your sense of humor and just this fly on the wall mentality that you have and enjoying the humanity of it all. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think I'm not trying to make fun of people or anything. But, you know, if I walked by a fake phone, not knowing it was a fake phone or just a phone on the ground or on a countertop, I would probably try to pick it up too. I wasn't as enamored by the mobile device as everybody else seemed to be at the time. I'm not a Luddite or somebody that hates technology, but uh, sometimes I am a little disappointed that it seems to be more important than the actual raw experience of life, but that's just how it's going to go. That's our, that's our evolution. And then that's, it's just how it's going. The fact that that's even something we're talking about is tripping me out a little bit. <laughs> Artist R. Land, speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. Coming up, we'll hear how R. Land's iconic Pray for ATL art came to be. Amplifying Atlanta. This is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. If you are just joining us, 
We've been celebrating love today and listening back to our conversation with the artist Our Land. He and City Light senior producer Kim Drobes recently discussed his 30-year love affair with Atlanta. And here, Land explains the origins of his iconic Pray for ATL art. I started doing the Pray for ATL thing. (laughs) It's not so unlike anything in that same period where, sort of like the loft signs, it was one of those moments where pretty much in love with Atlanta because of the community that we have and the types of people that are here and such a you know vast array of just a diverse city that seems so with it in so many ways. And I really felt the community so strong. I still, I still feel it very strongly, but basically I'm just saying that I understood what Atlanta was. I was in love with it. And then I saw outside forces trying to cash in on that and make it some crap that I didn't like. So I started putting those wheat paste pray for ATLs up with no intention to do anything with it, but just be like this desperate, like, oh my God, pray for the city kind of thing. It was coming from the heart. It wasn't like there was anything tongue in cheek about it. And I wasn't necessarily coming from a, some sort of altruistic religious standpoint. It was just like, whatever that means to you, this place needs prayer right now, because I can see it turning a, an awful corner. So I put them up around town and sort of like the lost cat thing, it instantly resonated in a way that I didn't expect. And then quickly became a thing other than just a street expression because people were asking if they could get that in any form. So I started doing like these massive silk screen runs of just the image on wood and paper and just about everything else. And so over the years, it's become something far more than just like what I think its original intent was and has definitely become more of an identifier for the city. And I wouldn't say that just in my own opinion. It's just like I I even had a dude one time tell me who lives in another city say that this was like 10 years ago or more. He's like, wow, that pray for ATL thing you do in Atlanta has sort of become like the I heart New York of Mm -hmm of the South. But that was like the highest piece of flattery that I had ever received. It's a really good comparison. I mean, I don't know if that's true, but I'm just saying that I I like it so much because it can be a straightforward message, but it's beyond that. It transcends what my intentions were, like I said, but also that I think when I moved away from North Florida back in the early nineties, I really wanted to escape the um, the religiosity of a city that's just consumed with churchiness. It's not that I'm against people being spiritual or or having a relationship with God or whatever. It's just that I needed to get away from it. And I found um, refuge in Atlanta and it being a more enlightened place where maybe you do have people that believe in God or read the Bible or whatever, but also plenty of friends that were agnostics and atheists that I could commiserate with and talk about all things existential. What I'm trying to get at is that over time now with Pray for ATL, it's like actual people of faith have come out of the woodwork to connect with me. And it's not like that's just all that it is, but it means something different to everybody. And then maybe on some level, there's a connecting point with everyone about just the general feel of the thing. So I love that. 
about it. No doubt. And over the pandemic took on a couple of different lives as well with mask for ATL and then vax for ATL. Were either of those or both of those partnerships with charities? Yeah, the wash for ATL in particular, you know, I've spoofed that that image so many times in so many different ways and sort of given license to other entities to play with it over the years. But the moment that the pandemic was really becoming a thing in everybody's consciousness, I just did that sort of iteration of it as wash for ATL. I think I just did it as a PSA on Instagram one day and it sort of caught fire and uh, got a lot of emails, DMs and the like. And the best one was the head or one of the main guys at uh, United Way contacted me that evening and said, hey, I would love to do something in conjunction with your new Wash for ATL art and maybe start a campaign to um, raise money for people who are affected by this, you know, especially people that don't have access to a lot of the things that other people do. So that campaign, instead of it just being an expression that I put out there in the world as a PSA, it became quickly a fundraising campaign that lasted a great eight or nine months where we raised so much money for United Way, but it was fantastic. What a Um, lovely way to be able to give back. For sure. So a couple of other pieces of yours that people think of, there's Little Bunny Foo-Foo, there's your Georgia Musicland pictures, there's one of my personal favorites, Kitten of the Sea. Where do you get your inspiration for some of these creatures that you come up with? I don't know that there's any special place where it comes from. I just have hundreds of sketch pads and doodle sheets. Everything sort of starts with just a rough drawing on a little piece of paper and then all of a sudden you look at it one day and go, I love the way this thing looks. I want to try to be as true to this original just quick sketch as I can. In the case of like the one you're talking about, I think there was a little tiny, tiny doodle and I just blew it up on the copy machine and tried to make it a more complete drawing. Sometimes just the sketch itself seems to be sufficient though, but in that case, I think I cleaned it up a little bit and made it a little thicker, but um, just want it to be something that that is right in the now, but if it comes from the right place, sometimes it lasts beyond the moment, for lack of a mm. better, better way to explain it. Is there anything else about your process that you could share from when it goes from a sketch on paper to a classic Arland woodwork? Again, it's just like sort of not subconscious, but a lot of times when I draw, I'm not really thinking about what I'm doing. I'm just doing it and not thinking like I'm going to draw a house and a bear or whatever. I just (laughs) am doodling in it and just sort of happens without me thinking too much. And then I go back and look at it. Like, I really like that. I would love to see that out there in the world. I would like to give it more of a life. So then I'll take the sketch, blow it up, fine tune it or not. Um, Probably uh, give it some color and maybe a little more solid line work. And that's kind of how it starts. We have so many aspiring and younger artists in our city now, which is a beautiful thing, but it's very hard to get people to notice your work. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice for younger artists who are coming of age nowadays? I think that it's the landscape is so different than when I started, for sure. I think that I probably for the first 10 years of me doing what I do, I wasn't sure if I was even connecting because it seems like, at least in the old school days, the more popular 
or commercially successful you became, the more people, especially artists and creative types would look down on you. Like, why are you so, why are you selling out or whatever? Which, you know, by the eighties had already, you know, Andy Warhol, there are a lot of people that were already doing things that were bridging the gap from the sacred white walls of the gallery to just being blatantly commercial or trying to reach a, a wide audience. But I've never had a problem with that. And I think, like I said, the landscape has changed in every major city where nobody's ashamed to reach out beyond the gallery to find an audience. And it looks to me like most younger artists now, like the, the young bucks that are doing all the, the murals and, <clears throat> and the alternative galleries and, and the like, aren't having a problem finding a way to, be, to find exposure. There's so many ways. And, and I'm just referencing back to my early days here where I sort of stood out like a sore thumb because I, it felt like what my work was looked so different than everything else to the extent where I wasn't completely secure about whether I was doing the right thing, but I couldn't help it. That's just who I was. And now there are so many young kids now that are doing things that are in the same ballpark and it's a no brainer. So it's so drastically different than even 20 or 30 years ago that it's hard for me to, to say what might be a good tip because <laughs> they right. might have a better idea than me at this point. Um, <laughs> right. But I just know that the, the path that I had, there was no path. I just, I made it up as I went along. There was not path, but you know, like a roadmap. It's like I had to carve my own thing without any idea that I was doing it right. And for the most part, avoided galleries just sort of through my own pop-up shows throughout the 80s and 90s. And uh, even to this day, when I do a show, of new work. I just put it together myself. I never waited for someone to ask me because not many people were back in the old days. And it got to be such second nature to not expect that, that even when people do ask you, it, it doesn't sound good anymore. It's like, why? I've already done all this stuff without it. Why would I want somebody to host me now? And so I think that a lot of young people and younger artists now are on that same tip. And if they're not, they're at least doing group shows, which are always super fun, where you contribute two or three works and be a part of something. And of course, I think collaborating with people that you admire and or people that might have a little bit more of a career than you have yet is a good idea. All that stuff is healthy for Atlanta's culture. Right. So we talked about a couple of things that you've done that you're like, I don't necessarily want credit for that as far as the iPhones go and some other of the prankster stuff that you never really signed your name to. But there was a series of paintings that looked like your work, but were signed by a different artist by the name of Royce Riley. Was that your work? Yeah, that came at a time where I was pretty busy and would get asked to do like, I think Righteous Room was one of the places and which is a very well-known popular dive on Ponce Avenue next to the plaza. Um, they asked me if I'd want to hang work. So at that point I was doing a lot of prints and reproductions of established work. So I didn't have a lot of time to contribute just my normal stuff to a full wall in a bar, restaurant, gallery, or whatever. So I would offer up this friend of mine or an artist, which was tongue in cheek, just even saying it, cause they knew it was going to be me, but I would just do these really sloppy they do look like my work, but they're sloppier and uh, didn't take a lot of time with any of them. They're basically like giant color sketches 
that were really loose. But what was good about them was I would just come up with stuff off the cuff late at night when I had sort of finished the business of the day, whatever that might be. I'd be like, okay, so I've got to fill this place in like two days with seven paintings. And then I just would find the surfaces to do that on, whether they be canvas or wood. And I would just come up with stuff on the fly. Maybe that also would start with a sketch, but instead of perfecting the sketch, I would just blow it up and draw it on the canvas and then colorize it. And it would be simple little expressions. A lot of them did involve words. And then I would go fill the space and I would price them cheaply because it, in my mind, didn't take much time. I mean, there was some inspiration behind it, but it was stuff that I would never do with my true editing brain. This is stuff I will let go because I'm not signing my name to it. It's sort of like the uh, silence do good with the Benjamin Franklin thing where he had pseudonyms. And and so I decided that I would give this whole strain of what I do to this one guy and just call him Royce Riley. It's almost like he was a folk artist or something. Mm -hmm. And um, I did not expect that I would sell them constantly. So, you know, for 250 or $300, you could get a giant painting, sloppy painting with a cute little saying or or witticism on it. (laughs) And uh, I don't know, I think in the course of a year, I probably sold like 170 of those paintings just in one place. Eventually all of that stuff, when I sort of stopped doing that, just worked into my own repertoire. Like I claimed it all back, fixed it up a little bit and made it my own. I think a lot of things that are commonplace in my catalog now came from that period because it was cathartic on some level. It was just like me giving myself permission to do something that seemed not so great or just like a B or C roll kind of expression. Then once I zhuzhed it up a little bit, it became, oh, wow, that's one of my favorite things. Like the snail that's on the side of folk art restaurant there in the middle of Highland Avenue. That was originally a Royce Riley or a bloom where you're planted or um, please be patient. God isn't finished with me yet. So anyway, yeah, that period was really cool and uh, brought about lots of new things and a new attitude about how to do that type of thing where I have character-related messages that are brightly colored and are in the form of a painting or a a print. Yeah, they came from that. There's so many things I love about that story, just giving yourself permission to take the perfectionist out of your brain for a minute, Yeah, create and just be done with it. Yeah, I mean, to actually do a big painting not worry about one part of how it turns out that it's just going to be good no matter what, because it's so silly and even verging on ridiculous. Like I would never allow this to happen in my own production, but since it's not me really, it's fine. And it's actually funnier somehow. And then over time, you're like, wait a minute, I want that for my own now, you know, and sort of just eliminate the guy that was doing it originally, which was the freer brain, the the one that was more like not concerned about how it turns out. And now it's under my control again. It's amazing how much you can create when you give your brain a little bit of a break, how yeah, much I mean, you really, can actually throw out there. When I sit here and talk about it, I'm like, why isn't, I mean, this is the way it should go a lot of the time is like, just create an alter ego and produce something that's completely not even something that you claim and oh man, it just gives you so much room to just have fun. I'm glad that you brought up, it was really important to me and it makes me kind of question why I don't do more of that kind of thing, if that makes sense. It's a good thing to keep in touch with mentally. I think you're right. That's it. That's it. You just need to stay in touch. 
you know, they always say you need to stay in touch with your beginnings. Well, also stay in touch with these stages in your life as a human being that you may or may not find to be important, but maybe they're more important than you than you think they are. The artist R. Land, speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Droves. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the Emmy Award-winning writer and producer Michael Shore, best known as creator of The Good Place, Parks and Recreation, and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Shore's new book, How to Be Perfect, The Correct Answer to Every Moral Question, takes on moral philosophy with bright wit and deep insight. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.